But I've got to say, I agree with the streamers matching me, complimenting me. You have no arguments for keeping it up from me, my brother. Friends, it's so good that we get to dig into God's word together now. Well, that's not how I would have done it. If you like taking notes on the outline in front of you, that's our first point. If you're helped by taking notes, then feel free to take notes on the outline just on the back there. Um, But because we're going to be hearing God speak, it is essential that we have our Bibles open. So keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 44, verse 24, through to the end of chapter 25. Keep that open in front of you so you can read it yourself. God's going to be speaking to us. And he's going to be doing that through the Bible. And we're also going to be speaking this word to one another over dinner. So make sure you keep it open with you and get ready to chat about it over dinner. It's going to be great. But have you ever said those words? That's not how I would have done it. If you know someone who ignores instruction manuals, you probably have. Whether it's building something from Ikea or cooking, you may have run into a fail or two. That's not how I would have done it. You can feel the disappointment in the person who says it. But if you're one of those people who doesn't follow instructions, like me, in your defeat, after multiple attempts to construct and deconstruct your homeware, you might look at the plans for the IKEA build and marvel at the genius of the Swedes who designed it. They are wise. In pure respect and awe, you might say, that's not how I would have done it. And I'm so glad. (laughs) Or after regret eating that dodgy meal you made. You might look again at the recipe or the YouTube video and in nauseous wonder, which that just brings out nausea to me, you might cry out, that's not how I would have done it. The chef's got it right. Disgusting. Let's get that off the screen. (laughs) Have you ever said that about what God is doing in your life, though? So good that we were able to chat together before about quarreling with God about what he has brought in life. Have you ever said that about what God is doing in the life of someone you know? Have you ever said it about what God's doing in your life? Have you ever said it about what God is doing in the lives of someone that you love deeply? Why am I lonely? Why am I sick? Why am I suffering like this? Why is there so much bitterness in my family? Why is my loved one seriously ill? Why did my loved one die? If I were God, that's not how I would have done it. Have you ever said or thought that? If you've ever said that, then God is going to speak directly to where you're at today. And if you've never said that's not how you would have done it, if you were God because you don't think he exists or you don't think he's powerful, you don't think he's in control, or if you don't think he even cares about anything in your life, God's also going to speak directly into your life today. This problem of suffering and evil isn't a new problem that catches God by surprise. God talks about suffering heaps in the Bible. Today's passage is one of the best passages for telling us part of God's answer to the problem of suffering and the problem of evil in our world. But before we hear how God responds to the statement, that's not how I would have done it, we need to see who he's speaking to and about what. Because in today's passage, the big thing he's talking about isn't the biggest problem or suffering in your life or my life. He's talking about the greatest suffering in a particular part of the life of a nation. His chosen nation, the people of Israel. He rescued them out of shocking slavery in Egypt and promised to give them a land of their own and to bless them and the whole world through them if they would obey his commandments. 
And he did. He gave them all of those things. But Israel's big problem was that they broke their relationship with God. Even though God had been so kind to them, even though God had been so patient with them, even though God had rescued them, they kept breaking their relationship with God by living with themselves as their king, not obeying God as their king. So, God kept his promise. Even though he had been kind and patient, they were going to be kicked out of their land. They were going to be exiled. Even though God had rescued his people Israel into their own land, back to a foreign land they would go in chains because of their rebellion. Just like with the first people who ever lived, Adam and Eve, because of their relationship breaking rebellion against God and deciding to run things their own way instead of God's, God exiled them from the garden. God exiled them from the garden. He exiled them from walking with him, seeing him personally. Suffering entered the world because of their rejection of God, because of sin. Israel's big problem a while after Adam and Eve was very similar to this. Because of their rebellion, they were going to be kicked out of their land. Israel was going to be conquered by the mighty and ruthless empire of Babylon, who were, who were the most powerful empire of their day. And God said that this would happen 80 years before it did. He said that the Babylonians would come through, defeat the armies of God, take their brightest young people away, and then come back and wipe everything out in their land. God told his people exactly what was going to happen. So far in Isaiah, we've seen that God spoke a word through his prophet, Isaiah, and it's a word of comfort and rescue. God said that his people needed to remember who he is in the judgment that they were going to face through Babylon. Although God's people were going into exile, he was going to rescue them. Unlike idols that the people of Israel worshipped, who were blind, deaf, and mute blocks of wood, God promised rescue for his people. And in the passage that we're in today, God is going to tell his people how he's going to rescue them. We're up to the second point in our outline now. Israel's rescue is guaranteed. So get your eyes on Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. If you've closed your Bible, get it open, but don't close it during the Bible talk. Get your eyes right there. Keep an eye out as we're reading to see if you can see how God is going to rescue his people. Let's read Isaiah 44, verse 24 and following together. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their, full, their knowledge foolish who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Do you see what God's going to do? He's going to keep his promise. He's going to rescue his people, just as he has said and done time and time again. In verse 25, God tells his people that astrologers, fortune tellers, and the supposedly wise people can make their predictions, but what God says will actually happen. 
God says halfway through verse 26 that Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people, will be inhabited again, that his people will live there. God says that the cities of Judah, which was the last nation to fall um, before the Babylonian exile, its cities will be built, its ruins will be raised up. Halfway through verse 28, God says that Jerusalem will be built and that his temple, where God met with his people, will have its foundations laid. Imagine being a Jew and hearing these promises right after hearing about the suffering your people were going to face under the fair judgment of God by going into exile and having your land destroyed. This is great news. God will bring us home. But how could a Jew in the day of Isaiah be sure whether this return from exile was ever going to happen? Well, we've got to look at who's talking here. And who's talking in verse 24? It's the Lord. It's Israel's God, the God who redeemed them, which means rescued them. He made them. He knows them so deeply, as it continues to say. He knows how terrible they've been to him. But God kindly is going to rescue them. God is committed to not being angry with his people forever. His judgment in the form of exile will come to an end. He is the God of Israel. But he's not just the Lord of one nation. He is the God of everyone and everything. Halfway through verse 24, he says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Who's talking? The one who is making these promises is their personal God, the amazingly kind God who has rescued them before. He is also the God who is the maker and ruler of everything. He made the world, do you see it in the passage? By himself, he stretched out the sky, spread out the earth. He is also the fearfully powerful God who is so kind, who rescues them. He's rescued them before. God saying in caps lock, My people, you can be sure that I will rescue you. You can be sure that I'll bring you back home. I'm all over this. I'm in control. I'm your God. Israel's rescue is guaranteed. But how is God going to do it? It's going to be through the Gentile Messiah. We're on to our third point on the outline. Gentile Messiah? We'll see what that means in a second. What would you do to bring God's people back from exile in Babylon? Maybe through activism, you could bring the king of Babylon to send you back. You might secretly train up an army in Babylon to take down the mighty Babylonian army and just get out of there. I reckon you'd be thinking, what can we do? If you were a Jew getting ready for exile in Babylon, how can we prepare our kids and grandkids to help them get home? Well, God's got a different plan in mind. It's not going to be through them. Israel is not going to rescue themselves. Back in chapter 44, verse 28, we see that God mentions the name Cyrus. He calls Cyrus his shepherd who fulfills all his purposes. Going into chapter 45, verse 1, he calls Cyrus his anointed. Who is Cyrus? It's not this guy. It's not Billy Ray. God here is talking about a man that will be the most powerful ruler of the most powerful empire of his day. History knows him as Cyrus the Great. But the strange thing is, this man isn't king yet. Weirder still, this man's not even been born. God here is telling his people through his prophet Isaiah that a king would come called Cyrus. 
80 years after Isaiah's words here, God's people are taken into captivity in Babylon. 70 years after that, a king called Cyrus, ruler of the mighty Persian Empire, defeated Babylon and sent Jews back to the promised land to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. You can read all about it at the start of the books of the return from exile, Ezra and Nehemiah. They're just in your Bibles there. All up, 80 years plus 70 years equals 150 years. Yes, got it. God said 150 years earlier that Cyrus is going to come on the scene. But what's his job going to be? God uses the word shepherd and anointed to describe Cyrus. The word shepherd is used for three types of people in the Bible. First one is people who literally herd sheep. And then as images for God and the king of God's people. This is language used about a person who guides, protects, and keeps the people of Israel in line. Like sheep. Here it's being used about a king who is a Gentile, though. That means he's not a Jew. He's not one of God's chosen people. God also calls Cyrus his anointed. Now, to anoint someone means to pour oil on their head. But this isn't just the newest trend in hair conditioning. This is part of a ceremony to make someone king. Many kings and rulers throughout history have become king, not when they get a crown on their head, but when they get oil put on their head. This is a little clip from The Crown. Um, This was done for Queen Elizabeth II. Our queen! It'll be the same if there's a new king. They'll get oil put on their head. And it was the same for the king that God chose for his people. The word anointed is translated from a word that you might have heard before. The word Messiah. This word means anointed one. The king. Almost always it's used as the king of God's people, except for in this passage of the Bible. God is saying clearly that he is going to raise up a Gentile shepherd, a Gentile Messiah, a Gentile deliverer. For his people. But what will this Messiah Cyrus do? Let's look together at chapter 45. God shows us halfway through chapter 45, verse 1, that God has grasped Cyrus's right hand to subdue nations before him, to take down kings, to open doors. In verse 2, to break through bronze doors and iron bars. In verse 3, God will give him treasures and riches. What's Cyrus going to do? Cyrus is going to do what any king of the most powerful army in the world will do. Conquer, defeat, and subdue his rivals. Why would you raise Cyrus up to cause so much suffering, God? That's not how I would have done it. But this is all for a purpose. Halfway through chapter 45, verse 3, we see that God is doing this so that Cyrus will know that he, the God of Israel, calls Cyrus by his name. So that Cyrus will know... Who has raised him up for this task? The Lord, God, the King of Kings. He doesn't just do this for Cyrus, though. God will make Cyrus victorious, in verse 4, for the sake of his servant Jacob, which is another name for his people Israel. God raises up Cyrus, who doesn't know him, for the sake of his people. God knows exactly how his people are going to respond to this. God, that's not how I would have done it. Why would you rescue us through a Gentile king? I can take a Gentile king coming in and destroying us to punish us, but to rescue us, you know what? You can keep your rescue. I'm good. 
This is even more of a betrayal than a New Zealander coaching our Australian rugby union side, the Wallabies. When New Zealander coach Robbie Deans was named head coach of the Wallabies, people went nuts. You haven't got anyone better who can do it? But you can imagine someone that you hate being appointed for something that actually matters, can't you? That would hurt so bad. God, that's not how I would have done it. Why would God do this? Why would God rescue his people through this Gentile Messiah? God knew that his people would respond to his control and his rescue in this way. Have a look from chapter 45, verse 9 to verse 11. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? God's saying, what right do you, Israel, have to criticize how I am going to bring about your rescue? Clay has no right to say to its maker, it isn't doing the right things. God in verse 11 says, ask how I'll rescue you. Don't tell me how I should do it. How can God say that? We're on to our last point. I am the Lord and there is no other. Why will God do the opposite of what his people think is good to rescue them? Why will he raise up Cyrus to bring God's people back from exile in Babylon? Let's see God's answer in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 45. Starting by talking to Cyrus, the Lord says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God raises Cyrus up to conquer. He does it because he is God. Nobody else is the maker of everything. Nobody else keeps everything going in existence. It's just him. Nobody else is the ruler of everything. It's just him. God rescues his people so that all people from the east to the west will know that the Lord is God, that there is no one besides him, that there's no other God or king, no other idol, no army, no political party like him. God does it so that he will be glorified, so that people will know that he is God and will praise him. Friends, don't ever get caught up making a picture of God in your head or anywhere that is different to who God says he is in the Bible. There are none besides him. Don't fall into the trap of worshipping an idol like God's foolish people. Don't worship a figure of what you want God to be like. There are none besides him. Have you ever heard someone say, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. They can say anything after it. But sadly, the intention of that comment is most, if not all the time, to say that they like to think of God as how they want him to be rather than who he is. It's really sad. 
I like to think of God as someone who ignores evil so that he'll let me and the people I like into heaven because we're not that bad. I like to think of God as a guide rather than a ruler. Or I don't like to think of God as in control of everything. How could he allow evil to happen? The list can go on, but it doesn't matter at all what somebody wants God to be like. God shows exactly what he's like in the scriptures, in the Bible. He speaks. It's clear. The fact that we see in this passage is that God is in control over everything. He's not just a genie that makes good things happen. He hasn't lost control or fallen asleep when bad things happen, and that's the devil winning. No, he's always in control over everything. God is the one who would bring judgment on his people through raising up Babylon to defeat them. God is the one who would rescue his people and bring judgment on Babylon through the Persians. He is the one who caused something as big as war to take place between Babylon and the Persians. God is the one who is in control of all these things. He is the one who brings well-being and calamity, as we saw in the passage. He brings well-being and calamity. He brings blessing and curse. That's not how I would have done it, God. How can you let evil happen? It is essential here that we hear and accept who God truly is. He works all things so that everyone will know that he alone is God, so that he will be worshipped. It's right that he would get all praise and glory. It's right that he works for his glory. And it's even kind, because when God shows you who he is, he also rescues. A false image of God won't ever rescue you. An imaginary God who doesn't do justice will not punish evil. Chaos will rule. An imaginary God who doesn't show mercy will never forgive. We need to see the real, true and living God. We need to see the ultimate example where he shows both his justice and his mercy in the worst thing that has ever happened in all of history. The worst thing that has ever happened in history was the murder of a truly innocent man. Have you ever heard stories of people being wrongly convicted of crimes? They sometimes spend decades in jail. They sometimes even die because of something they haven't done. It's tragic. Even worse than that is when a man was truly innocent, not just of a crime, but of ever hurting anyone. Innocent of even breaking relationship with God. This one innocent man was killed. There's only been one man like this. He was falsely accused and dragged before fate courts before being tortured and killed in the worst way people have ever been able to come up with. This truly innocent man died as a guilty man, taking all of the punishments of God for rebellion against him. His name is Jesus. In him we see the ultimate example of how and why God is good and in control even through making the most terrible thing ever happen. God rescues his people through Jesus in a way that's even better than the rescue that God brought through Cyrus. After the exile, God's people were back home, but they still had the same problems they had before. Their enemies were still all around them. They were still being ruled by all the big empires that came through, from Babylon to Persia and all the ones after that. And worst of all, they still rebelled against God themselves. Sin and death still ruled over them. 
But God anointed Jesus, the ultimate shepherd and Messiah, to die to prepare a forever home for everyone who he rescues and takes under his rule. God rescued his people from the punishment of rebellion against him as Jesus took that punishment on himself. But God raised Jesus from the dead to defeat death once and for all. God anointed Jesus as the king of everything forever. Have a look at that last half of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. It might sound familiar to you. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. When Jesus returns, everyone, everywhere, will bow to him and swear allegiance to him, whether they want to or not. It'll be clear to everyone that he is the king. But even better than Cyrus, at the return of Jesus, when every knee bows before him, suffering and disaster will be ended forever. He's the ultimate rescuer. So do you trust God to rescue you? Well, you can be even more sure than God's people who are about to be sent into exile that God will rescue you. Because Jesus has died and he's risen as king forever. The hard bit, it's already done. Rescue is guaranteed. You can be sure of it because God, the rescuer, is in control. Jesus died and rose again. If Jesus is your saviour and king, then sin no longer rules over you anymore. You're not a slave to it. Death doesn't have victory over you anymore. The true God has won. His rescue is as good as done. Jesus will take you to be with him into his own new land, the new creation. In the amazing presence of the awesome, true and living God forever. And whether that's when your heart stops beating or when Jesus returns, he will do that. So we can say, that's not how I would have done it, but thank you, God, that you did it your way. As Jasper read out earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, which I've got up on the screen there, people want their idea of God to be something that appeals to them. Signs or wise-sounding arguments, they sound great. But Jesus' followers speak about Jesus being crucified. Jesus' death on a cross looks foolish to people, who have got a made-up view of God. But to those who have been rescued by Jesus' death, isn't it just the most amazing news and rescue ever? That's not how I would have done it, God, but thank you that you did it your way. Thank you that you're in control, not me. Brothers and sisters, we need to behold our God. There's no other like him. We need to see in the Bible who he says he is. We need to worship him for who he truly is. The God who brings blessing and curse for his glory and for the good of his people. And God's glory and the good of his people, they don't cancel each other out. They're both achieved by God's right actions. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you need to remember who God is in the pits of your suffering as well. God is in control of your suffering. He doesn't hate you. He's shown how much he loves you. Brother and sister, you're in Jesus if you belong to him. God loves you as much as he loves his perfectly obedient and wonderful son. 
as much as he loves Jesus, because you belong to him, you're in him. Even in your suffering, you won't know exactly how God is going to use every bit of pain for his glory and for your good, but you can know that he will. We even have the promise in the scriptures in Romans 8 that God even uses the suffering that he allows for his glory and for our our good by making us more like Jesus. In the suffering that God has brought in my life, he has taught me who he really is. He's shown me that he really loves me. Even though I've questioned that, the cross stands time and time again. And it shows me that there's no doubt that God loves me. There's no doubt that he is good and in control. Through things as painful as the death of my dad and even the sickness of my mum now, I don't know everything about God's plan. And it's right that I feel sad. Death, sickness, pain, they're all awful things. I don't know why all the small details of what God's doing um, are happening. And I can cry out to him and ask him why. In suffering, Jesus' people can follow his lead. Jesus feels the grief of sickness and death and cries out to his Father for comfort for himself and for those around him. God's people can cry out to God and be brought to the place where we say, not my wills, but yours be done. You're in control, God, I trust you. Although I don't know the little details, I know the big things. God's in control, he is good, he can be trusted. I can even see that he's making me more like Jesus. He's working to glorify himself, even in little old me. And he's humbled me from thinking that I'm pretty good to seeing that I need him. And God's still growing me to worship him as he truly is. In my suffering, I try to distract myself from feeling sad. But God says that true comfort doesn't come from distraction, but by casting your worries on him because he cares for you. If Jesus is your rescuer and king, then you can be sure of the same thing. We know what God has done, even if we don't know why he's doing everything he does. We know the big things. So we need to remind one another of who God is from the Bible. There's no other like him. If we're going to keep worshipping God for who he really is, even in the suffering that God sends, then we're going to need every one of us to keep pointing each other to who God really is. We'll need, us, we'll need each other to correct one another when we're making God into who we want him to be rather than who he really is. True comfort, true rescue comes from worshipping the true God. Imaginary gods don't care, they don't rescue, they don't comfort. We need to be rescued God's way. If you're someone who has seen tonight that God is great and you have not been worshipping him as he really is, then tonight God is commanding you to be humbled under the rule of Jesus and to accept his rescue. Turn to him. Say sorry for living like your way is the best. Ask him to forgive you and rescue you. Ask Jesus to be the king of your life tonight. We're going to have an opportunity just after this to do that. The final words of the passage tonight from chapter 45, verse 22, are amazing. Will you tonight accept God's call and be rescued? Will you bow the knee to Jesus willingly before all knees will bow, willingly or not? 
Cast your eyes to chapter 45, verse 22 and following. We're going to finish on that. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Thank you, God, that you're in control.